0: You're listening to Plenary Session. This week's bonus episode of Plenary Session is a real treat. I have in the studio Dr. Tom Baer, who is the Deputy Director of the Knight Cancer Center here at OHSU. Dr. Baer is going to talk about something which is a major interest of his, which is investing wisely in one's career. How does one balance paying down one's large medical debts, uh, accumulating assets, saving for retirement, thinking about one's mortgage, and thinking about what other investments you can make as a physician. Dr. Baer has thought about this topic a great deal, and he's going to share his wisdom with the audience today. I think you're going to find it to be a fascinating discussion about a topic we don't talk enough about, if at all, in medicine. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Tom Baer. Dr. Baer is someone who will be familiar to the listeners. He came on episode 33, where we talked about cancer research and academic leadership. Dr. Baer is deputy director of the Knight Cancer Institute. Uh, he is a professor of medicine here at Oregon Health and Science University, and he is leader of the Prostate Group. Um, Dr. Baer uh, is back in the studios with us, and he's here to talk about the issue we don't talk too much about in medicine, which is how to get a hold on our finances. So Dr. Baer, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, My pleasure. It's great to have you back. I heard a lot of great things about your first um, time on Plenary Session. Um, I think listeners were, were fascinated um, by, you know, your experience with clinical trials. And so I, I urge listeners who want to know um, what it's like to take part in, um, you know, successful as well as challenging clinical trials to take a listen to episode 33. Um, but thanks for coming back on the, on the podcast. So we were talking a little bit um, between episodes about um, uh, different things that sort of um, were of, of mutual interest. And and I understand that, you know, if people told me you're the man to talk to when it comes to getting one's uh, finances in order. Um, uh, is that a fair characterization, Dr. Bear?
1: Well, you know, I um, my grandfather was a banker, and on my father's side, and my on my mother's side, um, there were many small business owners. So there's a little bit of a finance and business passion in me that is uh, uh, that has expressed itself as an interest in this area. I certainly don't hold myself out to be a, a financial expert, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm not a registered financial advisor or anything <laughs> of that nature. Right. So as they say in these settings, uh, whatever I'm about to say is for your entertainment and information only and <laughs> okay. <it> does not <laughs> constitute... Uh,
0: Exactly uh, right, formal yeah.
1: financial advice, but I, I I have had an interest in this personally, and I, I've read quite a bit. i I listen to a number of financial podcasts. Uh, and I just I find this area fascinating,
0: so I'm always happy to to uh, share some thoughts about that and i um and I, and I think we're going to appreciate that because this is the one topic that you know people don't really sit you down when you go into this profession and talk about. The how you handle your finances, I think, throughout the process. And so I guess where should we jump in? I guess maybe we'll just frame the issue by saying um, I think these days the majority of students who finish medical school graduate with um, some amount of college debt, Um, hopefully not too much because there's some ways in which they can get some of that um, paid for. Uh, Then they go to medical school and they often graduate with a fair amount of debt, and these days, it's increasingly in the six figures, um, sort of debt coming out of medical school. Um, that debt, for many of us, it feels like it's a, it's sort of a, a noose around our neck, and, and it's a weight that just keeps getting heavy at the end of that noose uh, throughout our training uh, as we watch that interest grow and compound. And then when we finish all that, we, we take our first jobs. Um, and we start to earn back money. And depending on the job that one takes, uh, they can often earn a sizable amount of money. And then maybe in a few more years after that, um, I think physicians are in the position where they start to think about how they can invest their money and invest it wisely. Um, and I think so that's, that's sort, of the, um, sort of the frame that I think we can talk about these issues. Um, where should we jump in?
1: Well, why won't we talk about the the early days uh, uh, as yeah. folks get started in their first um, practicing physician or faculty job and and are burdened by debt and um, uh, how how they might approach that situation and uh, um, I think this may be a stereotype, but I think it's real. I think there are, there are a number of physicians who who get into trouble at, in that situation and and um, get off on the wrong foot. Wh- what can happen to folks is that they've worked very, very hard to get where they are. Um, they may have some friends who went into business. They've been making a living for several years now. They have a, a nice house and have been establishing themselves economically. And uh, when folks get that, get that first uh, uh, attending paycheck, um, they can um, Sometimes feel like well they need to have a doctor's life you know mm-hmm. it's, it's it's they've they've waited for a long time mm-hmm. delayed gratification it's, it's time, to... time for that doctor's house mm-hmm. it's time for that doctor's car mm-hmm. and um, rather than focusing on on debt reduction and and economic security they they focus on consumption and that that is a path towards um, being outwardly affluent and underneath. Um, you net worth poor income affluent. That's mm-hmm. kind of a term that people mm-hmm. talk about. So um, while it's uh, really boring advice, uh, I think um, uh, a classic uh, bit of advice that, um, uh, that I've heard a lot on, um, for example, the White Coat Investor podcast, which is a, a financial podcast uh, for physicians that I've listened to, is... Um, that uh, one should live like a resident for a couple of years mm-hmm. after after mm-hmm. becoming an attending, and and focus on uh, debt reduction and getting started. Maybe it's a down payment on a home or whatever it is um, that they that folks need to do to establish their their financial footing. But if one can earn that attending salary, but not move that spending up uh, immediately to that level, it, it can make a, a world of difference. And um, uh, focusing on on getting a hold of uh, on one's uh, debt I think can can go a long ways down the line. so my uh, my first thought is to um, take stock of the debt and and get a plan on how to handle that mm-hmm. Now that may involve yeah. NIH loan repayment if yeah. someone's going to uh, into academics it, it may involve the public service uh, debt repayment program mm-hmm. uh, which I, I didn't take advantage of I'm not directly familiar with but, um, I- is out there to consider, uh, or just paying the debt down. And yeah. it, it is uh, very, very satisfying to do that, and yeah. I'd encourage folks to do that. The other thing, though, that I think young physicians need to think about is um, protecting themselves ag- against catastrophic developments, and that's lo- largely disability. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if, uh, I think there's a useful way of thinking about the economic life of um, any professional uh, by thinking about human capital and financial capital. So as uh, as we go through our training, gain skills and experience, we grow our human capital, which is our capacity to then earn a living over the rest of our lifetime mm-hmm. and um, you know, when we're done with our medical training, we've accumulated a, a boatload of human capital. Mm. Uh, it continues to grow as we become experienced physicians, but really the the big yeah, the growth, big growth in human uh, mm-hmm. capital I- is through your training. And we've accumulated probably negative financial capital, right? right. We have debt yeah, and, and no net worth. And um, the one thing that could really be devastating economically is mm-hmm. disability, which uh, disables us from our ability to convert that Th- those skills, that that human capital into financial security for our family. Um, so um, the one expense that I would think about early on is some disability insurance because that that's the uh, that's the biggest financial risk that physicians face. If they have kids, life insurance is something I would think about, but life insurance is not something you really need until someone is really depending on your income. Um, But disability, remember, you get to stay alive uh, uh, when you're disabled. Uh Uh, And if you lose your ability to earn
0: a living, that's the thing you'd really want to think about early on to protect yourself. Let me ask you about disability insurance. Does it matter in your mind if you are pursuing a field in which you have to use your hands uh, versus one such as our field where you mostly make decisions? By that I mean, um, you know, we may be able to tolerate a greater degree of physical disability and still be able to perform our job, the core functions of being an oncologist. Um, though there may be some challenges there, than a surgeon, for instance, or somebody who does, you know, hand surgery or something, very fine motor skill. Uh, does that play a role in in your decision to get disability insurance? Or no? I see you're shaking. I don't it. think
1: yeah. it plays a role in your decision. I think it it is reflected in um, the cost of insurance. Uh, premium, so, yeah, uh, you know the the uh, the high-quality disability insurance that you'd want to own is one that is uh, an own-occupation type of policy, which uh, pays you if you're not able to do your job, as opposed to pays you when you can't do any job. Um, I see what you're saying. Social security disability pays you if you can't do any job, but that means that you have to go out and try to, um, you know, do any kind of job before you qualify for Social Security. And those own occupation coverages do vary in their cost depending on what your occupation is. I'm sure an NBA player yeah. uh, pays a different rate than a medical oncologist and I, I suspect a surgeon pays a different rate than uh, than a medical oncologist does. But the decision to to insure yourself against disability is really about protecting yourself against um, the, the one devastating event that could really upend your entire plan for your life in terms of your economic um, you know survival if
0: you say And my understanding is the disability insurance is a lot cheaper in terms of the premium payments um, if one does it early in one's career versus later
1: yeah I think I think that's the one kind of insurance you'd want to think about early for a couple of reasons one it is it is less expensive when you get it early but also um, it's it's not too difficult to become uninsurable uh, in this world. You know, we mm-hmm. have, um, with the ACA, we have protections against um, pre-existing conditions Correct. and health insurance. Correct. But those protections do not extend to the private market for disability insurance and life insurance and so on and so forth. So if you um, happen to come down with diabetes or some other medical condition or are or, or injured skiing and whatnot, you may find yourself... Um, not able to insure against uh, disability. So, um, and and then the other thing is that the disparity between your human capital and your financial capital is greatest early on. I so, see. at some point during your career, if you've been saving and investing,
0: you should think about getting rid of disability insurance. Oh, yeah. go, okay. Explain that because you've you, you you've traded in the human capital for financial yeah,
1: capital. Well, there there is you know hypothetically. <laughs> once you have enough, so to speak, if, you can, if, if you've accumulated mm-hmm. sufficient resources to, um, to retire, even if you're not retiring, but if you have sufficient resources where you could stop working, you really don't need to be insured against disability anymore mm-hmm. because That's if something were to happen, yeah. uh, you, you, you're okay. Too. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's those early years where uh, maybe the risk of disability is not great, but the consequences uh, are absolutely devastating.
0: I okay. see, and you alluded to also to life insurance. Let's say someone is, um, you know, responsible for you know a family or something like that, and they're the the primary earner in that family. Um, uh, you would think about life insurance, and and um, in the in the rare event that something catastrophic were to happen and the person were to pass away, um, what sort of size? You know, you, I hear, how much money should someone be insured for at, at that early stages? What is, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it's a very individual decision. So first of all, let me touch on the type of insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in the most basic of terms, there's um, term life insurance and there's whole life policies. Whole life policies are sort of a hybrid of insurance and an investment vehicle um, and um, uh accumulate a cash value and are kept for a lifetime and, uh, and so forth. And term insurance provides you just a death benefit for a defined period of time. The term insurance is vastly cheaper than whole life, um, sometimes a fifth or even a tenth of the cost for similar, similar coverage. And um, most financial advisors, uh, at least for young physicians who can't afford to be doling out huge insurance premiums, really suggest that um, a term policy is chosen, perhaps a 20-year term, kind of long enough to cover you until uh, you've hopefully accumulated sufficient financial resources to take care of your obligations. Um, The amount really depends on what you think your survivors will need. If you're a single individual with no responsibilities, you really don't need life insurance. If you're married and your spouse uh, has significant earning capacity and can take care of himself or herself, you really don't need life insurance. You you might choose to get it uh, to make things a little easier for your spouse, but you really don't need it. If your spouse is a stay-at-home parent and you've got two kids and no college savings, (coughs) then you need to think about what will they need to um, maintain a reasonable life if you pass away. And that depends on what they, how you define a reasonable life. Are, are they comfortable with a modest living? Or do you want to maintain uh, the lifestyle that you uh, developed uh, with your full salary? Um, have you saved for college or not? Is your spouse a professional who could go back to work um, after two or three years? Uh, or is he or she really a, a lifetime stay-at-home parent? Or perhaps someone who's um, passionate about their work, but their work is not high paying? How they work in the nonprofit sector, or mm. or whatnot. So, um, so really, I think thinking about that, perhaps with a financial advisor or just a, a good spreadsheet, um, mm-hmm. is what would lead you to um, to come up with a, with a coverage amount. And then it's you know also a matter of what you can afford. You 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 may not be able to um, ensure for every eventuality, uh, and uh, you may choose to have a little bit less coverage than ideal. But now. Uh, Uh, meet your needs somewhere in the middle until you can afford the premiums that are required. I see.
0: And my understanding is that at some point in coverage, the insurer will ask the person receiving coverage to subject themselves to a physical examination, lipid panel, battery of tests. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's uh, uh, for any sort of a policy that's more than say $50,000 in death benefit, you will have some what they call underwriting. Mm -hmm. And that may be just a medical interview. It may be a medical interview plus a blood pressure and some blood tests and whatnot. It depends on the size of the policy and and who you're dealing with. Um, and that's um, uh, you know another consideration is that again as you age um, things come up, and um, most of us fortunately remain uh, insurable for a long time, but not everyone. And. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, I think when we're young, we think we're invincible and nothing's ever going to happen. But uh, uh, locking that coverage in early when we're healthy and robust uh, will certainly get us access to the lowest rates. And for 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 some people, uh, you know, things
0: happen that uh, that make it impossible to get life insurance later. I see. Um, so you alluded to, I think, a few um, you know really pearls. One is. Um, Try to live modestly. Don't go out and buy that Lexus right away. Um, try to come up with a plan for paying off your debt, whether that's some combination of loan forgiveness, loan repayment, um, or just paying it off. Um, but you wanna have a plan in place to pay that debt off. And I think that's probably especially true these days. When I finished training, I think I had something like a 6.8% you know, compounded interest rate on my student loans, which is the kind of thing you don't wanna leave alone for too long because, yeah, yeah it just keeps growing. Um, but I was fortunate when I trained at the NIH to benefit from the intramural loan repayment program, which is not quite as generous, but it's also not quite as difficult to get. <laughs> you just pretty much have to work there. Um, so that 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 went a long way. And I agree with your, your point that there is nothing more satisfying than watch that number kind of go down and down and down. I guess th- we have a few other topics to talk about. So now you're in your early career. You're starting to make money. You have a plan to pay down your debt. Um, What's your advice on how much money should you be putting in pre-tax um, to so-called you know retirement accounts, 401ks, um, I think 451, uh, you know these kind of long-term investments? Um, how do you think about those? So, um,
1: just to introduce the audience to the various options uh, for for academic. Uh, Uh, faculty, um, there may be a pension plan from the university and then there is um, opportunities to defer additional income and typically there's a 403B plan and a 457 plan. Those are two different vehicles and um, they uh, max out at um, something like $18,500 a year unless you're over the age of 50, in which case Mm -hmm. you can do a little bit more. Some institutions offer Roth options on those as well. So there's a difference between a, a standard 403B and a Roth, Roth 403B. The standard one, you get a tax deduction in the year that you contribute the funds. But then when you take the funds out of your account, uh, when you're retired, you pay income tax on what you put in and all the earnings. A, a Roth account, on the other hand, is funded with after-tax dollars. Uh, but is never taxed again. Uh, and so both the principal and all earnings are tax-free uh, forever, and even if you really want to plan ahead for your heirs if you uh, pass along a Roth account. Oh, really? so yeah. A Roth account is, is particularly valuable because of its um, uh, tax advantages. Um, if you do a, a robust financial analysis, um, what you come up with is that if your tax rates when you're saving – are the same as your tax rates when you're withdrawing the money, it kind of doesn't matter which account you use. You come out in about the same place. Um, But uh, most people think that while your income is low, uh, uh, funding Roth accounts is uh, advantageous. Mm. When you're at your peak peak income years, you may wish to use the deductible accounts to reduce your income and your tax burden Hoping that when you retire, your income is lower and the tax rates are lower. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a gamble worth taking, given that the nation is uh, running big deficits and taxes probably will be higher in the future than they are today, mm-hmm. I don't know. But that's the that's the sort of the general thinking. Which, uh, uh, in terms of which vehicle to use, um, in terms of how much to put in, uh, I think that if. The institution you work for offers any sort of matching, um, the universal advice is put in at least as much as required to capture the entire match. Mm-hmm. So uh, some places will have 50 cents on the dollar for the first 3% or 4% or 5% that you put in. And, and that's free money, uh, and you really uh, you really need to capture that, even perhaps ahead of loan repayment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to leave that on the table. Um, once you've funded that, then, you know, being the hyper saver that I am, my mm-hmm. answer would be as much as you can I because see. those are uh, uniquely valuable um, a- accounts and, and recognize that as you as your income rises, uh, you may get to a place where um, y- you you max out your contributions and yeah. you can't put in any more yeah. uh, and you wish you could because the tax-deferred vehicles are, uh, you know, advantaged in how they grow, and certainly a whole heck of a lot easier to deal with. So for example, if you wanna change investments, inside a tax-deferred account, you can sell and buy without any tax consequences. Now, I'm not advocating that people sell frequently. In fact, I'm a a long-term buy and hold investor, but even to rebalance, uh, you have to um, buy or sell certain investments. In an after-tax account, every time you make a transaction, you're dealing with well. There's a capital gain. I owe some taxes on that, and so forth. So, um, I would, um, as much as possible, maximize the contribution to those accounts. Uh, by and large, ahead of almost any other savings, except an emergency fund.
0: I say. Our profession is, I think, different than some other professions where the peak money-making potential of someone occurs at an earlier age than in medicine. Um, By that, I mean, uh, my understanding is that for many people, their 40s are the decade in which their sort of peak money-making potential occurs. But in our profession, it seems as if it's the last years you work, whether that's your 50s, 60s, 70s, sometimes even beyond that. and, and I guess, does that factor in in the sense that what that means is um, many of the years in which you'll be drawing off the retirement accounts are actually years in which your income may be very, very high as well, um, because you're still working to some degree uh, in the years that a lot of other people may be retired, uh, and you're paying a higher tax burden. So thus, you'd want to think more about the Roth up front.
1: Well, I think it's awfully hard to know when you're getting started what you're going to be thinking when you're in your 60s, all right? Um, the... Uh, uh, in terms of withdrawing from retirement accounts, you're required to begin to withdraw when you turn 70 and a half. Mm-hmm. So um, you're right. If you're working into your 70s, you do face a situation where you're actually withdrawing from your uh, IRAs or 401ks, 403bs, those accounts. Um, while you're earning. While you're earning. Mm-hmm. Um the Roth accounts uh, are are different. You don't have to withdraw from those, so that's a that's oh, a solution for someone who thinks they're going to work forever. But frankly, I, I I don't know anyone who at age thirty or thirty five really knows how they're going to feel uh, thirty five years later <laughs> and whether they'll c- continue to want to work f- full on that long. Some people certainly do that, but we also, frankly, we're seeing higher rates of burnout in our professions, and we're seeing some folks retire. Earlier, so it's it's hard
0: to predict uh,
1: what uh, what people are what choices people are going to make.
0: What's your feeling about um, public pension plans or so- so-called pension plans? You know, I don't know if um, we should get too much into it, but of course, when I started working here, we have a choice in OHSU whether or not to choose um, a sort of a traditional retirement account or to take part in the Oregon um, public pension plan. I made my choice. Uh, I don't know if it's the right choice, but um, but different people may have. Um, you know, I think Kaiser Permanente Day has a two percent yeah. per year pension. The VA has a yeah. something like that. Um, but what about in the cases if it's a choice, choosing between the plans? How do you think about that? I guess if they're going to give it to you, you got to take it. Um, but if there's a sort of a question, or if the ball's in your court. Sure. So you know, here at OHSU, we had a choice,
1: and we still do between the Oregon Public Employee Retirement System, so called PERS. Mm-hmm and the University Pension Plan, which is a very generous savings and investment plan. It's generous, but it is basically like a super-sized 401k with the employer making a substantial contribution. Um, I chose the University Pension Plan when oh. I joined the faculty 20 years ago. I wish I hadn't. You wish you had <laughs> um, But I reasoned that as an academic physician, there's no way I was gonna be in Oregon more than four or five years. Mm. And you know the pension plans really um, uh, turn out well for people who spend a long time mm-hmm. at one institution within one system. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks that uh, work for five or ten years and then move on, m- most of those systems have a years of service times some percentage times your highest salary or the last three years of your salary or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you know if you leave employment at age forty. Mm-hmm and then 25 years go, goes by, mm. and then you begin to collect your pension, unfortunately those highest years are not adjusted for inflation in most plans. It's just whatever they were. Mm. And so um, you end up with um, typically with a pension that hasn't kept up uh, with uh, changes in wages. Um, so it's a hard call to make which one of those to choose. I wish I'd chosen the public employee pension system for a couple of reasons. One is I've stayed here for my whole mm-hmm. career and I would have benefited from that formula. Mm-hmm. And the other is that it it does diversify your risk a little bit. So uh, I've saved for my retirement in the 403 plan and the 457 plan. And my university pension plan is just more of the same. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. exposed to the same Market risk, and it's you know giving me the same headaches and anxieties about whether I'm investing correctly or not. If I'd had a portion of my pension that were guaranteed by the state, I I think I would sleep better at night. But who knew back
0: then? That's the choice I made. What choice did you make? Are you willing to share that with the listeners? Yeah, I made the I made the same choice as you (laughs) uh, for almost exactly the same rationale, which is that you know, in academic medicine. one doesn't know if um, you know one's going to be there for twenty, thirty years in a single institution, it's always is some uncertainty. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but I guess if I you know if I have the same institution for twenty years as as you are, I would also um, you know have the same exact feeling that you do. I think listeners will know that this pension has been featured um, unfortunately, quite recently, in The New York Times, because um, there's really no sort of ceiling on this formula, and there are a number of uh, or at least a handful of people who are collecting sort of tremendous pensions, and that's what the New York Times did a little story on. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, one thing I do think about with these pension plans is um, how they will be solvent uh, in some of these states long-term. And I think actually even Oregon, even though it's it's a major, I think, difficulty politically in the state, um, we're still a little bit better than places like Illinois where these public pension plans are huge um, liabilities for the state you know something like hundred billion dollar liabilities going forward and it's I guess I always wonder would the state ever default on their obligation will they have to default on their yeah. obligations yeah well I think I think
1: first of all we should acknowledge that uh, the discussion we're having is a luxurious one mm-hmm. you know most people in this country don't have a choice between a, a generous savings plan, and a public pension. You know, so we're very lucky to even have mm-hmm. this discussion. And I suspect many of our listeners may not have that choice. And certainly many private practice physicians uh, are responsible for uh, saving for their own retirement using the available investment vehicles and after-tax accounts and so forth. So um, uh, really want to acknowledge that mm-hmm. we're in a unique place. I do, uh, you know, the the public pension system in Oregon has been reformed several times and the, the present incarnation has clear limits on the pension uh, benefits, so it's not crazy generous like the so-called Tier 1 was. Mm. But the the Tier 1 retirees are still retiring and it is true that for them the formula is really straightforward. It's years of service times some percentage, I think one and a half or something like that, times three years of the highest salary. And when um, uh, you know, when someone is uh, a senior executive in a, in a healthcare system and has a salary north of a million dollars and work many, many years, they end up with a pension that strikes most people as um, greater than one would expect. Um, the uh, the current pension system doesn't do that, but mm. we still carry the liabilities mm. for some of the decisions that were made 10, 20, and 30 years ago. And um, it's hard to imagine that a state would truly default on a pension obligation, but things that are hard to imagine sometimes happen in mm. human history. So <laughs> we'll see. I know that municipalities like Detroit, right. for example, have gone through uh, a bankruptcy Process and um, as I understand it, uh, you know, pension benefits didn't disappear in any municipality sort of bankruptcy, uh, and were largely protected at the expense of other obligations. Mm. But um, you know, there's certainly some risk to public pensions. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, there's a greater risk to private pensions, yeah. uh, which are uh, guaranteed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Company, uh, Corporation, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but that that has some limitations as well.
0: Yeah, I know many of my colleagues who work in the Kaiser Permanente system um, sort of refer to the Kaiser Pension Plan as uh, the golden handcuffs, uh, because once you're in there enough years, um, it is um, uh, almost invariably a poor financial decision to seek employment elsewhere because you have such a good pension plan, uh, something like 2% per year for the first 20 years of their the highest years of earning, yeah, uh, and then one percent thereafter, um, and so they feel as if um, they trade a little bit of the salary for that sort of guarantee. Um, but Kaiser, of course, is a big and you know financially solvent system, and so it, they should be in good shape.
1: Yeah, but but you are um, you are betting on the organization that you're working with mm. continuing to be financially successful, mm. and uh, I think. Um, it would be extraordinary to imagine Kaiser not managing to remain solvent. They're a well-managed organization, but history does show, um, at least in the corporate universe, yeah. uh, organizations that for a long period of time were sound and successful, uh, and then became unsuccessful and failed. So, you know, there's no risk. F- there's. There's no risk-free life on this planet. There's right. always there's always something to worry about, and so I think what I would say about that is that we should all diversify our bets, and so that's where you know insure against the greatest risks, save and invest um, through various strategies. If you have a pension plan, you can supplement that with your own personal retirement savings. You may wish to supplement that with some sort of personal investments outside of tax-deferred vehicles, be it in uh, Mutual funds, or maybe um, a rental real estate uh, unit, you know, mm-hmm. duplex, something like that. I think a lot of folks make um, uh, make their ends meet through a variety of such activities.
0: Let's uh, talk about some of these other things. So the next thing on my list was um, mortgage. When the the faculty member um, the uh, the junior attending the private practice doctor is out you know year or two or three years or thinking about you know buying that first home or condominium um, what's your advice on you know how do they think about you know you, you referred to the doctor problem which you know they start to think, oh, I should live in the house that, you know, any orthopedic surgeon would live in with uh, 7,000 square feet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what would you advise them about how should they think about how much money to invest in their primary residence?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, um, I think a home is primarily a consumption item. You know, We think about it as an investment. Yeah, we do. Yeah. And it, it is a, an investment of sorts. Homes do tend to go up in value over time, although not always. Um, and um, but it's also an expensive thing to operate you know, there's, there's property taxes, insurance, repairs and so forth and at the end of the day um, there are better ways to invest your money uh, if, if the purpose is to invest, to, to gain um, uh, earnings off of an investment mm. um, you know, you, if, if you think real estate is a great investment a rental property actually generates income instead of uh, being a cost center so my, my first advice would be to, to buy um, you know, the sort of home that uh, you need and that you'd be happy to live in, but not something you can't afford or is greater than, than, uh, than you really need. And hopefully you're not thinking about showing your neighbors that you have the bigger, fancier house, because mm-hmm. that is a short-term reward and a lot of long-term pain. And remember that a seven thousand square foot house, the, the heating bills are not the same. <laughs> <laughs> the cleaning bills are not yeah. the same. You know, it is just a, um, a a ball and chain on your financial life if mm. it's um, more than you can afford. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, we, we all mortgage our home to um, uh, to buy it. By and large, very few people can afford to to buy it with cash. We count on the mortgage interest tax deduction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk to your tax professional because you may be disappointed. Um, the, uh, uh, the new tax law, for example, has a much higher standard deduction uh, at 24000 for a married couple, limits state and local income tax deductions to $10,000, mm. and if you think about it, an awful lot of people are going to be taking that standard deduction and not itemizing.
0: Right. In which case, the mortgage tax deduction doesn't benefit them.
1: And even if they itemize, there is $14,000 there that doesn't count. So you can can deduct $10,000 of your state income taxes. The next $14,000 just gets you back to even with the standard deduction. Right. And only above that do you get to claim deductions. So if you're very generous to charities um, or if you have an enormous amount of mortgage interest (laughs) – or some other deductible expenses, you may get there. But I think a lot of us will be taking the standard deduction. Mm-hmm. And when you take a standard deduction, your mortgage interest is not mm-hmm. tax deductible.
0: So you have no incentive to buy the biggest home and the most expensive mortgage. Well,
1: certainly not a, a tax incentive. For not a tax incentive. Yeah, okay. so you have, to, you have to look at that carefully and think about uh, what your benefit truly is. And, and to be frank, it's been less than people think for a long time. You know. So for example, in, at certain income levels, dedu- deductions were limited historically. So for a geek like me who does their own taxes on TurboTax to this day, I, I see those numbers move and I can see how I enter my mortgage interest and nothing happens to my tax liability. Right. So I can see that, but um, if you don't do it yourself, you may not recognize some of the limits of, um,
0: of deductibility of interest. That's a very interesting way to think about it. I think, yeah, maybe in some cities, Seattle, the Bay Area, you know, just to get your foot and door in the property market, you're probably going to get a mortgage tax deduction <laughs> that's going to be exceeded. But Portland may be on the cusp. And then place, p- places out in, you know, rural parts of the country, South Carolina, Kentucky, Michigan, you know, you may not get there. Yeah.
1: No, um, you may not get there. But even in those expensive yeah. places, let's say you're spending $20,000 a year on mortgage interest mm-hmm. or 25000 Right. Um, and let's say you're deducting $10,000 in your state and local taxes. Only about you know 4 to 9,000 of that interest is actually functionally deductible because you you know the first 14 just just gets you to the the watermark of the standard deduction and so your tax benefit is only about $3,000 on that. So it's not it, that that tail should not be wagging the home purchase dog. You should buy the house that you want to live in that's right. and that's going to take, you know, provide the kind of shelter that you want for you and your family, give you the enjoyment uh, that you need, and, and not more than that. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, a lot of folks, uh, it's a very common question, do I get a, a 30-year mortgage yeah. and invest the difference if if you are in the luxurious possession of having a difference, or do I get a 15-year mortgage and pay it off sooner? And um, first of all, I would say, you know, if you have, if you're able to ask that question, that's great, because that means you've got enough money that you could afford a 15-year mortgage. For, for some folks, that's not a choice. The only way you can swing a home is a 30-year mortgage, and that's perfectly reasonable. But if you have that choice, um, pure financial analysis based on historical returns would suggest that uh, stretching the, the debt and investing the difference in the stock market would, would put you ahead. But that's not my approach. Okay. Personally, yeah. I don't like debt. I, I, uh, I think paying off debt is fun and um, lets you sleep better at night. And remember, um, returns in the stock market are not guaranteed, uh, whereas uh, your interest payments on your mortgage are perfectly predictable <laughs> and and don't go down uh, uh, as, as stocks can. So I, um, I chose a 15-year mortgage as soon as I could afford one just because of my uh, – my psychology around mm-hmm. debt and there's nothing wrong with that and if I gave up um, one or two percent in returns in exchange for the certainty uh, that I derived from that and it helped me sleep better at night I think that's perfectly fine. So if you're if you're doing a rigorous financial analysis and decide to go 30 and invest the difference that's great. I think you're on sound analytical grounds but if you don't feel comfortable with that
0: and you prefer to pay off your debt sooner Personally, I think that's perfectly okay. Mm, that's, a, that's a good piece of advice. And w- if somebody were in a 30-year mortgage, they are still often afforded the opportunity to pay down more aggressively than what the m- mortgage payment requires. Yeah. And and that's another way in which they can kind of take advantage of that certain certainty of the...
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can prepay a mortgage. There's, um, as far as I know, no prepayment penalties on standard mortgages Certainly, never encountered one myself, and um, uh, you know you could take a strategy where uh, you know if you if you're in a situation where you're not comfortable investing right now, you feel like you know the stock market is way overvalued. That's the time you choose to put your extra money against your mortgage. And, right. I mean, t- technically, you're not supposed to market time, mm. uh, but. You could make that choice if you if you wanted to apply some personal judgment and, and you have a strong conviction that you know right now you' you're not comfortable with putting more money into whatever investing options you have. You prefer the uh, safe option of paying down your mortgage. But one thing I would say is that you know one advantage of a 15 year mortgage is that you typically get a lower interest rate. Mm, yeah. so if you if you think you're going to try to pay down the mortgage in fifteen years or less, uh you know you get quarter or half a point less interest on a fifteen versus a thirty, so you might as well just just uh do that if you if you can swing it
0: so so we've talked a little bit about paying off the loans um you know optimizing your retirement savings, um getting that first home, but not um you know not going extravagant just because you think you can get this magic mortgage tax deduction. Now, let's say you're a few years out beyond that. You've been maybe faculty or working for 10 years after your training, um, and you start to have some savings accumulate You know, even after having a good control of these things. Um, where do you think about putting that savings? Yeah, Just leave it in that checking account. That's what I always say. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably not a, not a good strategy. Not a good strategy yeah.
1: <laughs> Certainly, if you're absolutely risk averse, at least buy treasury bonds or put it in a CD or something, because uh, checking accounts nowadays yield virtually nothing. And you can get two to two and a half percent interest uh, with um, the safety of U.S. government securities. Um, uh, but, you know, I think any, um, any financial advisor that you'd talk to would w- would make the point that when you're young and have a long time horizon, so-called equity-oriented investments are where, um, uh, where one should concentrate. So equity-oriented investments are so-called risk assets, are things that reflect a participation in the economy. And so that could be stocks. It could be um, investments in real estate, either directly through ownership of a rental unit or indirectly through a real estate investment trust or something like that. Um, or if you're, you know, particularly creative and energetic, inv- direct investment in a business. Uh, for, uh, there are some people who are able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um, equity-oriented investments uh, historically uh, deliver returns that are commensurate with the combination of what the business earns each year and the growth of that business um, over its lifetime, so if you um, if you buy just to keep things simple, if you buy a single-family home that's a rental, your return should be uh, your your rental income less operating expenses, plus your appreciation, which hopefully reflects inflation. Mm. Um, that's typically better than what you can get in a passbook savings account or mm-hmm. uh, in a, certainly in a checking account. So so-called equity orientation. Um, I think, is an important component of any sort of a, a financial plan. The other things that, that I think are important is diversification. Uh, you know, don't put your eggs in, in, in one basket. Um, you want to, um, uh, you know, if, you're in, if, we're, if we're talking about marketable securities, stocks and bonds, you want to invest uh, in a broadly representative portfolio of uh, U.S. and international small and large value and growth um, stocks, you want to likely have some bonds to balance that and uh, not uh, bet on the hottest tip uh, or the latest uh, uh, thing that you read about or heard about over, uh, over lunch. Um, so a broadly diversified investment portfolio is, is, is an important component. Um, low cost is critically important. So, as you invest, particularly in, in mutual funds, uh, for example, or ETFs, mm-hmm. the one thing you can control is the cost, uh, the internal cost of your mm-hmm. investments. You can't control what the market can do. You can control what you invest in, or if you're diversified or not, and mm-hmm. you can uh, control how costly the investment is. And you can think of cost as something that drains out of your investment every year that you mm-hmm. own it, and the lower they are, the better off. Uh, you you may be
0: for that reason some recommend um, just going with an index fund something linked to the S and yeah. P five hundred Vanguard five hundred so or something.
1: I, so I'd be embarrassed to say that the the longer I've done this the the more I've come back to target retirement funds. You know oh, if, yeah. if okay. you listen to any yeah. kind of a financial podcast what they'll say is that uh, you should uh, use a target retirement fund which is a fund for those listeners that aren't familiar mm-hmm. with it that blends. Stocks, bonds, U.S. international into a portfolio designed to take on a fair amount of risk when you're young, and gradually dial that risk down as you get closer to retirement. Right. Does that automatically rebalances itself automatically? It's sort of a set-it-and-forget-it investment. Right. Most financial advisors will say that uh, you know you can do better than that with a sophisticated portfolio. And once you get to two or three hundred thousand dollars in investable assets, you should be blending yourself. You know, small, medium, and large international, U.S. and and uh, rebalancing every year, and uh, and then you can maybe be a little more sophisticated and a little more tailored to your personal goals. And that's great if you can do it, uh, but I have found personally that while I'm pretty good at not selling in a down market, I have a tough time rebalancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, rebalancing is all about taking the asset that's appreciated. Mm-hmm. And selling some of it and investing in the asset that's lagged the market. I see. If you do that yeah. over long periods of time, uh, you improve your return. Yeah. But it's really hard to do psychologically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and I'm just not good at it. I know I'm supposed to do it, but you know, when when the small stocks are down and I have to take money out of bonds to invest in them, I don't always do it. Mm-hmm. And so I've decided for myself. To move back to largely those boring target retirement funds that do it for me, so I don't have to worry about that. And I, I consider myself a fairly knowledgeable, sophisticated investor, and mm-hmm. yet that simplicity for me, for my behavioral limitations, uh, I think is is the right choice. Um, there's a whole field of so-called behavioral finance that that captures the uh, th- the sense that we as investors. Um, uh, you know, behave uh, often irrationally and not in ways that um, uh, that we we know serve our best interest. you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what we should be doing is investing for the long term, not timing the market, rebalancing regularly, setting a portfolio once that is well designed, carefully crafted and sticking with it through thick and thin. And if we did all that correctly, uh, history teaches us that we will be better off. but, um, if unless you're absolutely confident that you can do it, it it can be nice to just turn that over to a low cost mutual fund company and have them do it for you mm-hmm. uh and that's what I've done after 20 years of pretending I'm a good investor and doing some things right and screwing up some other things
0: now how does one balance the decision to invest in you know as as you put it you know this well run mutual fund this target investment fund uh versus also taking on buy a little rental property um, how do you do how do you make that choice
1: yeah well I think those are very different um, the uh, you know individually owned real estate is um, uh, you know from my perspective a, a diversifier it's a different asset completely from the stock market uh, it's something that um, uh, can be a huge headache Um, And so you have to be willing to um, put some time into it. It doesn't mean you have to be the landlord. I mean, you can can hire a property manager to identify tenants and get them in, get them out, uh, uh, negotiate lease agreements and fix things that need to be fixed. Uh, But even when you have a property manager, there is um, – there's inevitably decisions to be made and and um, uh, interactions that you have to have to oversee the property. Um, you also take some risk. I mean, you, you know, if it's been wonderful to own real estate in Portland and Seattle, and, and it's not been so wonderful to own real estate in um, Detroit. No. I think Detroit's now turned around, but if you look at what happened to property values in the city proper you know, uh, over the last 20 years, uh, it's not been rewarding for for folks who've um, uh, invested there. So, you know, there is some risk that uh, your investment will be in a town or a neighborhood that um, mm-hmm. doesn't appreciate, that a hurricane will come along mm-hmm. and cause damage to your property, that, you know, your tenant will turn out to be Um, you know, difficult and damaged. You know, there's all kinds of risks to doing that. Uh, But, uh, you know, I've known a lot of folks who've done very well for themselves um, with um, small, directly-owned real estate investments. And, uh, you know, they can play a very um, uh, stabilizing role in one's financial planning. There's there's even a... um, yeah, I read a long, long time ago a, a, a article or a book that suggested that one could save for retirement by buying six houses. <laughs> and w- w- if you think about it, if you buy six houses early on in your life, if you can find the down payment dollars, mm-hmm. um, you borrow you know, 80%, you put down 20%, your tenants essentially pay off your mortgage over the ensuing 30 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, around the time that your mortgage is paid off, um you uh, are ready to retire mm-hmm. and you own six houses free and clear and um if you think about the wh- what people spend on on uh housing the rental income from six houses is roughly what what your income is you know y- we typically spend between 20 and 30% of our income on housing so I so i don't advocate that as an alternative to a diversified <laughs> investment portfolio uh but having um uh, you know, one or two properties that generate some income can can be uh, a diversifier for people who are willing to deal with the headaches and the challenges and feel comfortable with the inherent risk of concentrating an investment into one or two properties.
0: Hmm. And what's your philosophy about um, when one per- when one goes to get a rental property? Should one plan to buy it out cash outright or should one take a mortgage out on the second property? So
1: I think for most people it's very difficult to buy a property uh, with, with cash outright. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, certainly uh, the cash outright approach is the lowest risk approach, right? The, the, the big risk in, in leveraged real estate, in other words, borrowing against your property is that something will happen where the mortgage payments will continue, but the income will be reduced or absent, and you're stuck carrying the property. Mm-hmm. Um, for you know, individual rental homes in a decent location, I would think that risk is very low. I mean, um, it, it's conceivable that an economic downturn would cause you to have to charge lower rents. For example, so if you have some margin of safety around what your mm-hmm. mortgage payment is and what your rent brings in, that, that 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 helps. But you'd have to envision some epic disaster where your income would go away completely and your mortgage obligation continues. I mean, I suppose if if it, if you got a tenant that turned your property into a crack house and contaminated it mm-hmm. uh, and it would be beyond repair, right. hopefully you've got insurance coverage to help you with that. But God forbid you. Uh, something happened to your home that wasn't covered by your insurance policy or you know a natural disaster there was a flood and you didn't have flood insurance I mean you could you could imagine things like that if your rental home had been in in New Orleans through Katrina and you didn't have flood insurance but that those are rare events and I, I think we can check flood maps and we can uh, make sure that we have an appropriate insurance policy policy to cover for major risks. And so in that context, I think if you can uh, leverage the, the investment a little bit, the financial advantage of doing that is that, you know, you're, uh, any appreciation that accrues to the property, the owner gets the entire appreciation, even though they only own mm-hmm. 20 or 30 mm-hmm. percent of the property. So mm-hmm. from a financial return perspective, you um, the uh, leverage can be can be helpful provided that you can get through a downturn Mm -hmm. that what you want to make sure of is that you have sufficient financial strength either in the property or or personally or both that if we encounter another 2009 where for several years property values went down rents went down that you can get through it. it it's selling at the bottom that that devastates portfolios there's this concept of um Temporary versus permanent loss. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a, a financial author who's also a physician, William Bernstein, that I admire a lot. Mm -hmm. And he draws a clear distinction between the risks that we talk about a lot, which is financial volatility, Mm -hmm. stock market goes down, or property values go down, and permanent loss of capital. And permanent loss of capital is from things like devastation, uh, confiscation, or selling your investment at the bottom, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, devastation and confiscation are thankfully in the United States rare events. But people who went through the yeah. Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. um, through um, you know political upheavals around the world, or natural disasters, know all about that. And you know, I um, I was born in Poland, where uh, you know when communist government came after World War II. Um, business owners lost their property, so I'm pretty familiar with confiscation mm-hmm. um, and the devastation of World War II largely demolished capital for most capital owners. Mm-hmm. So th- those things, those things can happen. In the U.S., thankfully, historically, those have been uh, extraordinarily unlikely. But selling at the wrong time is a personal form of of, of permanent loss of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so with real estate, just like with the stock market, make sure you can hang on through the downturns. And his history suggests we all come out at, uh, all right. Even with the real estate um, downturn mm-hmm. that we saw yeah. 10 years ago, property values are back mm-hmm. and above where they were in 2007. Mm-hmm. So if you weren't forced to sell because you over leveraged, um, you're okay. Yeah. So don't over leverage, but participate in that equity oriented um, investment universe because that's what in the long term yields the kind of returns you need to build a secure financial future.
0: What's your advice for how much funds someone should have as sort of liquid assets for emergencies that may arise?
1: Well, that's a very individual decision. I think, um, You know, a rule of thumb is um, that people often write about in financial advice literature is six months of expenses. Um, Mm. But it really depends. You know, uh, you have to, first of all, not everyone can afford six months right right away. So I wouldn't be immediately discouraged um, uh, and say, oh my God, I can't do anything else financially until I build up six months of cash. I think that's something you can you can work towards, um, but it also depends on one's personal financial situation. So, for example, if someone is employed by a, an institution such as ours that provides sick leave and has disability uh, coverage that kicks in relatively quickly, um, you know, there's less risk than when one is a small business owner with no safety net. Yeah. Uh, you know, if someone Uh, has a job where they don't get paid if they don't show up. You know, if you're a locums physician, Mm -hmm. um, and you only earn money when you work, Mm -hmm. um, that's different than my situation. I've been uh, on faculty for 20 years. I have about nine months of sick leave accumulated.
0: Oh, wow, okay. You know,
1: so that gives me a little comfort that if something happens to me, I'm not gonna be um, uh, uh, immediately uh, in trouble. And so my needs for a financial cushion are a little lower than if I were a self-employed person. Mm-hmm. If one has a, a partner or a spouse who is employed and, and earning, that's a different financial situation than um, if one is the sole breadwinner for the family and there is a significant expense in running the household, you know, kids, tuition, whatnot. So one has to, I think one has to take a look at what would happen if I had no income and how quickly would I be in financial trouble and how much financial resource do I need to get across that, um, that dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, if one's disability kicks in at 180 days, then you need a plan for 180 days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If one's disability kicks in at 90 days, um, then, you know,
0: you can think about it that way. I see. Um, now one one question I have for you is,, um, and I think we're f- we're fortunate in medicine um, that you know there's been a number of studies that look at career lifetime earnings, and they are generally quite favorable for any profession in medicine, any specialty mm-hmm. of medicine. Some specialties, they're incredibly favorable. should have chosen those but no (laughs) um
1: podcasting is not one of those yeah. (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) yeah sadly podcasting i and and writing books from johns hopkins university press they haven't had the return on investment that i've that i've really sort of expected them to um but um my question for you is um at some point in your career um if you if you do as you have advised and um and you live i think modestly but well, um, but not extravagantly, um, you will likely reach a point where you feel comfortable with that you have enough money um, to sort of cover you for the rest of your life. Um, that might be in your 50s or 60s or maybe you know, towards the end of your 60s, but at some point you'll feel like you are in a secure financial position. Um, at that point, someone may start thinking about how they can optimally transfer their assets um, if they're not planning on spending it down in their life um, to either children, you know, close friends, family, perhaps a, you know, sibling, um, or perhaps maybe transfer to a charity or, you know, something, some other sort of, um, you know, legacy after themselves. Um, when does one start thinking about that? And what are the sorts of things one one does in, in that calculation? And, or um, yeah. uh, estate planning. Estate so, planning, yeah. Well,
1: I think... Um, I think everyone is a little different in their thinking about this issue, and um, and one's thinking can evolve. So I, I think when I was um, getting started, this was the last thing from my mind. I wasn't thinking about inheritance either—my r- receiving my mm-hmm. an inheritance from my parents or any sort of a legacy f- uh, that I'd like to leave my kids. Um, but as one gets older, and uh, um, th- those issues become more real. And I think the first thing that, that one needs to think about is what does a person want to do in that regard? Do, do we want to use our resources to have an impact during our lifetime? Or do we want to leave some assets behind for other people or for charity? And, and either approach is uh, is uh, legitimate. And there's, there's ways to accomplish either approach. I mean, if, if one wants to... Um, uh, uh spend the money so to speak uh, there are ways to do that uh, <laughs> you can you can buy an annuity which protects you against running out of money and then blow the rest um, and and that's perfectly fine mm-hmm. um, but if one wants to leave a legacy to one's children for example, which I think most most people, people do, think yeah. about um it's uh, f- the first thing I would say is it's 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 really tricky and really important to, Uh, educate the kids about what that means and um, financial life and how to manage a legacy. Um, I recently heard and read that something like 86% of American millionaires are first generation, which means that an awful lot of uh, kids or grandkids of millionaires blow blow the money. (laughs) So, and I think the majority of, by second generation, wealth is usually uh, uh, used up, so to speak. So, instead of just focusing on how to pass along the money, uh, I I think spending some time thinking about how do you engage your kids in um, being financially savvy, being frugal, not viewing uh, a legacy as a a pot of gold that would enable them to... um, not work, to not do meaningful things in life, and and actually be damaging to them. And I don't pretend to have figured that out, mm. um, but I'm certainly thinking about it a lot. And um, uh, I think um, uh, it's critically important that kids are independent and productive and happy before they get their hands on, on any sort of family money, because mm. uh, you can really do more harm than good with a legacy. Um, the uh, in terms of actual financial planning, uh, you know the 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 biggest issue that people think about is estate taxes, right? So, nowadays, at the federal level, the ceiling for estate taxes is very very high, and. If you're fortunate enough to be beyond that, beyond that, then you need to be talking to somebody other than me to get your financial advice. <laughs> 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 um, what is the like ceiling? Twelve million, or so? it's eleven and 11 a half million, million yeah. per, person, per person. So, so a couple would be uh, at 22. yeah. It's it's uh, now you do have to manage the process correctly and file an estate tax return when the first person dies and things like that to, <laughs> to capture those portability requirements and so forth. Um, But it is very, very high. Um, So I think the importance of sort of classic estate planning, at least at the federal level, is a little less acute than it used to be. But what a lot of people don't know is that state estate taxes can be substantial and vary a great deal and um, don't necessarily follow the federal rules. So here in the state of Oregon, estate taxes begin at $1 million. There is no couples' portability and um, the rates quickly go up to 16%. So if you have one of those $11 million Mm -hmm. estates, um, you know, the state of Oregon is gonna get about $1.8 million of that. Mm -hmm. And so even though um, planning at the federal level may be less important, planning at the state level is still an issue. And so, you know, in that context, some of the things that that folks do is gifting during their lifetime, you can gift um, up to $15,000 um, f- from each person to each person. So mm-hmm. if you have two parents and two kids, you can gift $60,000 a year mm-hmm. um, uh, to your kids or to some sort of a um, a trust for your kids and uh, th- that isn't subject to uh, uh, tax gift taxes or estate taxes. There's a correct way to do that and, and um, one has to Keep correct records and so forth, but um, one can do that. And there's sort of more complicated trust arrangements and so forth that are really beyond the scope of what I think I can uh, soundly offer. Um, but you know, a couple of things that that may be sort of basic that people don't know about is that um, IRA accounts present some unique challenges um, when when somebody dies. Um, an IRA, IRA accounts dollar value, uh, counts dollar for dollar towards your estate, even though it's pre-tax money. Hmm. Okay. And um, so if you're inclined to convert your IRAs to Roth IRA accounts, you reduce your estate um, and pay less in estate taxes, even though you transfer the same amount of value to your heirs. I see. So that is something to think about. and. Poorly handled IRA accounts can really blow up on people because um, if you pay um, the income tax on on the withdrawals and an estate tax, you can actually tax away much of an IRA account's value. So if you have a large tax-deferred account, get some good advice from uh, an estate tax attorney or, or an accountant who knows... Uh, a, a lot about transferring IRA accounts to your heirs because that, that's something you really want to pay attention to.
0: What about moving to a different state? Go to Vancouver and just cross the bridge. No, <laughs> I don't know about Washington State, but what about to avoid some of the state level estate? I'm sure people do do it.
1: Oh, yeah. I think uh, people do. And, and I I do worry a little bit about the state of Oregon losing its philanthropically inclined mm-hmm older citizens because they don't want to die um, mm-hmm. in Oregon and owe a substantial estate tax. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that our state is is wise to uh, have an estate tax that is so much more stringent than the federal level. Um, you know, my, my mom lives in the state of Maryland, which is very much a blue state, uh, but it is moving its uh, its limits up higher, not quite to the federal level, but a little higher so that it's not Static and at the same level as it was ten or twenty years ago. Uh, So people do move. Um, It's a you know, I wish we didn't have to move for tax purposes. I think most people don't move for tax purposes. Yeah, most people live where they want to live because they want to be close to their kids and their friends. Uh, But yeah, you you can you can certainly move uh, to another state uh, if you can predict when you're going to die, you can move, uh, you know, at the last minute, but that's pretty mm-hmm. hard to do. Yeah.
0: Well, I, um, I want to thank you for coming on and taking us through all these interesting topics. I, I learned a fair bit. Um, I, I don't want to admit to all of my mistakes, but I see a few of my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, from, um,
1: believe me, I've made many mistakes. You have? Uh, yeah. um,
0: I think that, um, the, the one thing that, um, you know, I, I do think you know, I think that I, I got right is, um, you know, continuing to live sort of frugally and um, uh, after becoming an attending from from fellowship. But then the more I kind of go down, you know, as the years go on, I realize that when it comes to sort of the, the things of consumption, uh, there are very few of those things that actually interest me as a person. You know, most of the things that interest me are things that are very, very low in price. Uh, like You're lucky. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, yeah, I, yeah I
1: mean, I, I think it's really important to think about what... What you value personally. So mm-hmm. for our family, we really value time with family and travel. And mm-hmm. so we 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 don't travel luxuriously in the sense that you know we don't go from four seasons to four seasons, mm-hmm. uh, but we do spend uh, a fair amount of our capital on on travel. Um, uh, and that is, we view that as an important thing that we're passionate about and, and really enjoy. It enriches our lives. Mm-hmm. And some people might take a look at how much we travel and view that as a luxury, but for us, it's a meaningful thing that we mm-hmm. want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, the most expensive car I've ever purchased was thirty-three thousand dollars, and I've never, I've never purchased, a, a, you know, a, a new Mercedes or mm-hmm. any kind of Mercedes for that matter. <laughs> even though I. I look I look upon cars and think, wow, they're beautiful and fantastic. Yeah. I, I've chosen not to uh, not to spend money um, on very expensive cars. You yeah. know we live in a home that's uh, 2400 square feet. It's in the city. It's a nice comfortable home, uh, but um, it's no mansion and it has a small backyard and we have neighbors right next door. We enjoy that. We like that. Uh, it works for us. Um, but it's also enabled us, uh, not to be financially stressed because mm-hmm. we it's a home that we we could afford fairly early on. So um, aligning your spending with with your values and what you enjoy and what you really value and and, and appreciate and will look back on as worthwhile, mm-hmm. I, I think that's critical. And you know, being crazy frugal is is also um, mm-hmm. a n- not necessarily a good idea. none of us can take it with us and we don't live forever. Right. So if there's something that you really, really appreciate and enjoy, uh, by all means, if you can afford it, do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, but one of the things I enjoy is um, managing our economic situation so that I feel secure and comfortable and know that I'm
0: not uh, depending on next month's paycheck just to pay last month's bills. Mm Dr. Bear, thank you so much. It's been a great uh, a great discussion. And I think the listeners will find this uh, very interesting. And this is what, you know, really you go through so much medical training. People don't sit you down and kind of talk through these issues. So I, I appreciate uh, you must have taken considerable amount of self-motivation and self-education to kind of get through all these topics. But thanks for sharing your knowledge with us, Dr. Baer. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.